and welcome to another episode of Rhythm and Bay Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jasmine Ellis. And today, I am so excited. Our guest is someone who was so hard to get. This person is just so unavailable, so busy, so inaccessible. I'm kidding. It is none other than producer extraordinaire, Ryan Torpeo. Hey! Hello. How are you? Oh, you got the Sicilian pronunciation, too. I was going to ask, because I, 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 I wung it, if you will winging it in the past i so torpeo is right that is that is technically correct now people in my family don't even say that but then when we say it they're like but it actually is torpeo what's the what do you usually just say we just say torpia torpia people go is it torpia or torpia and i'm like didn't you just say the same thing (laughs) so for today's off the record segment i found a really interesting story because you told me about this a few weeks ago and i was like this is interesting and we are talking about legendary jazz musician Lee Morgan. This article comes to us from ncaarts.org, written by Larry Rennie Thomas. Lee Morgan, the fiery, hot, extremely talented jazz trumpet player, died much too soon. His skyrocketing career was cut short at age 33. One cold February night in 1972 at a Manhattan, New York club called Slugs, he was shot to death by his 46-year-old common-law wife, Helen. At the time, Morgan was experiencing a comeback of sorts, and he had been battling a serious heroin addiction problem for years, but by most accounts, he was drug-free. His gig at Slugs was the talk of the jazz world and was a must-see for all of those in the know. There was always a packed house during his engagement at Slugs. He looked good, was well-groomed, sounded great, and seemed destined for a fantastic future. Then the unthinkable happened. How could this be? Why would Helen Morgan kill her constant companion? What happened in their decade-long relationship that would cause her to do something that devastating to Lee and herself and to Lee Morgan's legion of fellow musicians, friends, and adoring fans. The only person who could answer such a question was Helen Morgan herself. She was arrested that Friday, February 19, 1972, and served time in prison and was later paroled. She lived in Brock's Mount Vernon and Yonkers, New York, until 1978 when she moved back to her hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina, to be near her mother, who was very ill and later passed away in 1980. Helen became heavily involved in the Methodist church, spent time with her grandchildren, and took classes at a local college and received a degree. But no one knows about the past other than some members of her family. She almost never talked about it, yet she still had friends in New York, like the late vocalist Etta Jones, whom she would... Jones? Etta Jones. Um, Maybe there was an Etta Jones. My brain is going, you sure it wasn't Etta James? No, okay, oh. I will. How bad would it be to be Etta Jones and you're just minding your business and then some bitch on a podcast is like, Etta James? Was it James? There's no Etta well, Jones. Well, she's dead. She died at seventy at 72 in 2001. And, okay, good. Um, yeah, so she won't. She's just rolling in her grave, I guess, still. Uh, no, Etta Jones is a real person. Oh, see. Remember, this is a po- this is a podcast about music discovery and each week I discover some shit. I come into this not knowing, and you guys get to learn with me. So Etta Jones is not Etta James, but she's also not alive, so she won't be mad at me. She would telephone her frequently to talk about old times, but almost no one, especially in the jazz scene, knew where she was. Now, how did a country girl from rural North Carolina end up in this situation? She talked about her life with Lee Morgan in a rare and exclusive interview in February 1996, about a month before she passed away of heart problems. Okay, first of all, we love a queen who can handle a schedule. She was like, I'm probably going to die next month. Let's go ahead and hit it up and do an interview. (laughs) I'm not saying she scheduled her heart problems, but I feel like you can't get to a certain age where you know if you held your breath for five minutes, you would die. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's just being self-aware, honestly. (laughs) You know what I mean? 
So like, do people pass of natural causes or if they're like, let me just go ahead and blow up a balloon and call it a day. Oh my Anyways. God. <laughs> I can make fun of murderers, can I? No? Okay. Her health had been in a decline for years and she explained that she wanted to do her one and only interview because she wanted to tell her side of the story. She was tired, she said, and she knew she didn't have long to live. See, she knew. I told you she knew. <laughs> I just said it. So let's talk about how her and Morgan met. When she was 17, Helen Morgan was married to a 39-year-old bootlegger for a few months. And then two years later, her husband drowned and she became a 19-year-old window. Oh, her husband drowned? There's no... I'm just saying... If you, if you I, I think that's husband, been handled. It's been looked into. Don't worry. It has? I think, yeah. I think people double, you know, they cross-check that to be like, she didn't, like, murder all of her husbands, right? That's not, like, how it goes, no. Um, no. Yeah, they're so about to talk. No... She had some bumping parties. She was, like, breakfast at Tiffany's, yo. Oh, wow. So you told you told me you watched a documentary about this, right? Yes, yeah. It's a really good one. There's a doc... I mean, there's a whole documentary based on this interview that they're talking about right now. And they kind of do a biopic on lee morgan as well and then they kind of splice it in with these interviews with her um but what i remember specifically is she was very much like an audrey hepburn she was a 19 year old widow she had this apartment and i guess she was just like throwing parties and she was also just like a neighborhood sweetheart so when musicians were around she would let them like crash at her place or or what have you i'm you know your maybe your article's gonna fact check me on some of that um but yeah, she just like, I, I, as I remember it, he just kind of like is wandering around New York and was also kind of like a typical jazz trumpet heroin junkie. And uh, why is that so typical? I don't know, but it's a thing. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, she was like kind of helped clean him up and clean his act up a little bit. She just kind of got yeah. into him because he was coming around all the time. According to the article, she met and fell in love with Lee Morgan in the early 1960s when he was a full-fledged junkie. After he moved in with her, she helped him get off drugs, clean him up, and became his manager. Helen helped him restore his career. The good years for them were when Lee was working. He was making good money, had a young, much-in-demand band, appeared on TV, released several excellent records, and was touring all over the United States and abroad. They were meeting and greeting people who were mostly high-profile show business personalities who they would sometimes entertain in their apartment. Late in a decade-long relationship, however, she noticed that his attitude changed and that he became more distant. Helen suspected that he was seeing a younger woman who she said she saw him hanging around. And keep in mind, they do have like a 19-year age gap between the two of them. Lee started to run the streets a great deal, and sometimes he wouldn't come home for days. She began to wonder if there was wonderful, fun-filled fast times were about to end. And it was around that time that Helen began to ask herself, did I love him or did I think of him as my possession? And I think part of that might have been my fault because I might have started to be too possessive or too much like a mother to him. I was much older than Morgan and I thought about it. Like I made him, you know, I brought you back. You belong to me and you are not supposed to go out there and do this. She cited in the book called The Lady Who Shot Me. So that's an exact quote from her that she felt like she was starting to possess him, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, not that you need to go shooting somebody, but it makes a lot of sense when you feel when you feel that someone's indebted to you and then they're not treating you the way you expect. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know how much you do for junkies and then expect a lot in return, but um, like you know, she definitely changed. He had a really prominent career before this happened, and then you know, mm -hmm. 
that's what happens with a lot of these jazz guys is they they would get to a really good spot in their career and then you have a lot of money for drugs and then you kind of like start wasting a lot of it on doing drugs um especially in new york i mean heroin was just huge in new york especially also in the jazz scene for whatever reason that's just what that was kind of the drug of choice and uh i think because it just really numbs you but uh yeah, I mean, she kind of, like, definitely resurrected him, and then as soon as he was like, oh, you know, now that I got some spry, some spring in my step, I can, like, actually go meet women who are my age and, like, go run around a little bit and, like, Damn. you know, he's, he's, I mean, I'm, I'm just speaking from his perspective, and I'm speculating, but, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, he's like, this oh, yeah. This is 90% speculation. Pumpkin. I'm like, uh... <laughs> I, I'm a hot trot. I'm hot to trot, and I'm not addicted to heroin anymore. So like, I'm gonna go run around and like do the thing. And uh, yeah, that made him not so happy. Also, I think he did kind of just feel super controlled himself. Like, there's some sort of memoir where he was kind of like, you know, when you, I don't know how much time you've spent with drug addicts, but like, you have to, you do have to baby them a little bit. And then there comes mm-hmm. this weird like line of. Well, you control everything I do. And it's like, well, because if I didn't, you would kind of end up back on drugs or like around a bad crowd. Um, And then, you know, it becomes this kind of like weird power struggle where people don't feel in control of their lives at all anymore. Addiction. It's it has a lot of a lot of effects. And that's one of them. You lose the trust of people around you and then they have to get into a controlling cycle. Man, it's really sad sometimes. On February 19th, 1972, she went to see Lee at Slugs. During intermission, Helen saw that he was with a young lady whose name was Judith Johnson. Big Booty Judy. I'm kidding, that is not. (laughs) (laughs) That was a song in the mid 2000s, and I don't know why I felt the need to break up this tension by giving her this nickname. Judith Johnson is not Big Booty Judy. I don't want anyone to think that that is part of this story. Okay. Lee and Helen had an argument. He pushed her and escorted her out of the club. She came back in and shot him. He bled to death because the ambulance took over an hour to get there due to the snowy blizzard conditions and the city had experienced that day. In 2014, Helen and Lee Morgan's time together was published in the book, The Lady Who Shot Lee Morgan, written by Larry Rennie Thomas. That's also who wrote this article I'm reading. (laughs) The following year, their story was the subject of an award-winning documentary called I Called Him Morgan. That's what you watched, which Mm -hmm. was directed and produced by Swedish filmmaker Casper Collin. So it's kind of, it seems so straightforward, but the idea of them, like, getting into this, like, parasitic relationship is really a lot. I think it's because she was managing him, too. Because I think when you get love and money mixed up, things get bad. I mean, yeah, it's like the Nina Simone situation a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. she was married to her manager, and they had this really, like, toxic, awful relationship um, where, like, you know, he would beat her, and he was awful. But I think she would also, like, admittedly, I think in a Nina Simone documentary, she kind of, like, verbally abused him. So there was a lot. They had just, like, a really weird, awful dynamic, um, too. Mm -hmm. And I think... One thing that I think is interesting in this article mentioned a little bit is like she was severely beaten and abused as a child growing up and she was in she was a country girl like she knew her way around a gun. I don't think she was afraid to like, you know, do what she felt like she had to do that she came from a background regardless of like running away early at a young age or I think it's like she was really young like 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, she ran away at 15 and was married at 17 and widowed at 19 to her husband she did not kill 
who drowned. Probs not. Probs not. There's no proof she drowned him. (laughs) He fell face down with my hand on top of his head. Uh, Oh my gosh. I I'm so sorry. I skimmed over this part right here. Helen Morgan, like, remember when I was like, it's starting over with her birth date again. I got so mad to read one line of text twice that I missed. (laughs) I was like, I already know she's from North Carolina and didn't want to read this line of text. Y'all, I missed a huge line here. By the time she was 13, the attractive, talkative, bronze-colored skinned girl had her first child. A year later, she had another child. Both of her children were raised by her grandparents. She left them to move to Wilmington and at age 15 and live with her mother. When she was 17, she started dating the bootlegger who was 39 years old. So there's no mention of who the father of this 13-year-old or of her child was at 13. And it's speculative of me to say this, but like historically, it's probably not true. More than likely, the father of that child was an older male family member. Yeah, I uh, I think they dive into this in the documentary a little bit. And I don't know if they know that it was her father or what but i i do believe they mentioned that it's i mean i think she mentions it herself that it was uh it was somebody in their family i mean it's it's like i said she had a a rough rough upbringing and there's a reason she ran away i also don't think she could read like she was kind of uh you know indebted and under the control of a lot of men because she couldn't just read and also you time period you can't just like go get a job as a lady it's not super super easy as a woman who can't read and is also a woman of color, that's like some difficult shit to overcome. Um, Mm. So yeah, I mean, not saying that justifies like shooting somebody, but I'm just saying like lady wasn't afraid to TCB (laughs) take care of business. Yeah. I think she's just a person who grew up, grew up with so much cruelty around her, but still managed to be kind. And when someone took her kindness for granted, that really broke her. Not, yeah. I mean, again, nobody's saying Lee Morgan deserved to die at his concert. Um, but there's just the poetic justice of like using someone to get yourself back together and expecting to get away with that. A lot of women, you know, that just pushes them too far. This is interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I think it's definitely like you said, it's very stately also to murder someone like while they're performing on a damn stage. Like that's just that's no fucks given. That's absolutely yeah zero like that's not even like you know what i'm gonna get him when he gets home or like i'm gonna trip him and falls down the stairs it looks like an accident that's just like no you're on literally i'm gonna put you on a silver platter and take you out so i mean that's definitely very stately and that i guess the article doesn't did they yeah they mentioned that he kicked her out that was the other thing that pissed her off a lot oh was he was there with this other woman that she knew he was running around with. And then the documentary, mm-hmm. they dive around a little bit. And she, like, she like basically was kind of like, you know what, I understand. He's kind of just, like, my live-in partner friend, too. And, you know, they didn't really, like, have that much of a sexual relationship at this point in time. I think that was starting to wane. So she knew. But she also mm-hmm. didn't want to lose him. She she loved him and she really cared about him. So it was it was the fact that he showed up and then he started to treat her like the other woman because this gal was around his like mistress of sorts. And that's what really like breaks her in this, in the, in the film that she speaks to is like, he was sitting there with this other woman and just being really cavalier about the fact that like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm literally cheating on you. And, and 
it was always this unspoken thing that's kind of like, okay, I know that my guy is out late at night all the time. And like you said, I don't know. It's just like uh, she had done a lot for him. And then for him to throw her out in the snow, in the cold, in the northeast, freezing, she was like, fuck that. And comes back in with the gun and just takes him out. So bless, you know. Sometimes you got a TCB. Take care of business. Take care of business. Not TCBY. Get frozen yogurt. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. That's stupid. Crazy, I'm not from LA. Crazy. We don't have a lot of frozen yogurt. <laughs> I think TCBY is like a Texas or a South chain, actually. This is I mean, crazy story. Um, definitely take out, check out the documentary, y'all, if you get a chance. I called him Morgan. Uh, it's a great, uh, a great great story and just honestly i mean lee morgan is a super accomplished musician as well but the story of of the woman who killed him is fascinating this is this might be one of the ones where i'm very interested in the murderer like that is usually the the victim is more fascinating to me but helen morgan led i mean she led a wild life and was really involved in jazz music and like you know, as a person who grew up in an abusive situation with no money and an inability to read, she was managing people's careers. Yeah, she, I mean, she she made a lot happen for herself. And uh, maybe she learned how to read later, or maybe I'm just totally wrong about that. But I do know that she, I mean, like I said, she did had very little to no education. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, I mean, I really like, when I watched this documentary, I got the serious like Audrey Hepburn Breakfast at Tiffany's vibe, where she's just like, the socialite of like Harlem or the, you know, having all these jazz musicians come and they would play at her house and they would jam there. And they just knew like, Oh yeah, Helen's is the place to be. And she always had food cooking and there was always food there for people who were in need. Um, so like, you know, really, and really a sweetheart woman. And, um, Lee Morgan is a really interesting trumpet player in his own upbringing but yeah i would definitely say the fact that he fucked around and found out is <laughs> what is so compelling about him oh rest in peace lee morgan rest rest in peace that is gonna wrap up our off the record segment if you have any ideas for people we should cover, different stories, we're still doing Behind the Murders as of right now, but look out in November for our romance off the record segment where we're going to cover, uh, not this, couples that worked out, not ones that killed each other. Um, so look out for that next month. But uh, wow, 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 wow. That's going to cover this segment. If you have any more questions, send us emails at rhythmandbaypodcast at gmail.com. So Ryan, tell our audience what exactly it is you do. I know you're a musician, but you're doing so many different projects. Like what are you putting out there and what, what are you most excited about? Um, well, I'm really excited about my own music. I uh, very selfishly have my own band and solo project. And you can find that if you search Ryan Torpia, not Brian. Brian's and I got beef. We have a conflict mm -hmm. of interest. It's the B. I'm Ryan <laughs> Torpia with an R. That's the way my mama named me. I'm very proud of it. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah, I've got, a, last year I did about seven songs on Spotify that are all self-produced and recorded here at home. So I'm an engineer, I'm a producer, I'm a musician, I went to school for music. Um, and yeah, I freelance as a musician around town playing a few different instruments with several different bands from like keyboard and guitar or trumpet, depending on kind of what people need. And then for my stuff, I play a lot of the instruments actually myself. And then occasionally bring in a friend or two to help me, you know, either feature them or 
somebody plays drums, which is a little bit of weaker instrument of mine. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm really excited just about putting out my own tunes. I write songs for other people. Um, and then I work here at the studio that you record with at Midcoast Media. Um, so I'm a podcast engineer and editor. And I just wear a lot of different hats around town. Basically, whatever it takes to put bread on the table or non. I really like non a little bit more than like, you know. <laughs> so as a musician right now in like such a social media heavy age, what is it like? What does it take to get a song? To, is that a goal of yours to have a song go viral? And what do you think it takes to accomplish that? I mean, yeah, I, I, I definitely wish songs of mine would uh, be listened to and appreciated, um, which I can't say that they're not, but, you know, I think we all want them to be listened to a lot and appreciated a lot. So mm-hmm. depending on, you know, how you mean by viral, because sometimes I feel like things go viral, but it's very like, it's very shallow in the sense of like, well, that was hip for like two days or it's hip because it's funny. I don't, I definitely don't think I want my songs to be ironically appreciated because one girl does <laughs> like a really like nasty TikTok dance to it or something like that. But, uh, you know, in the same sense, wouldn't be a bummer. Wouldn't be a bummer if you're listening and you want to do a TikTok dance to one of my songs. I paid an influencer one time to do something like mouth, like lip sync the lyrics to one of my songs and she was like a spanish flight attendant that for some reason has like fifty thousand followers on instagram and uh she did a story to one of my songs i thought oh man let me experiment with this and absolutely nothing happened no one listened to my <laughs> song or checked it out i was like some influence you have <laughs> that is so interesting you just never know what is gonna strike people and now it's kind of funny because it's like everything has to be so lacking in nuance like it has to be so straightforward like i saw this singer songwriter on tiktok yesterday who made a song about noodles the pug because Uh, that is like what people you know noodles the pug right the pug that like maybe has bones maybe doesn't oh my gosh i don't know about that how do you not know okay so noodles the pugs everyone's gonna be like he doesn't know noodles noodles the pug is this guy i think his name his account is like janoog janoog um, anyways, every day he plays a game called Bones or No Bones, and he talks in a very like NPR type of voice, where he's like, "The game where we find out if Noodles has bones or no bones," and it's like the tea leaves. So he has a 19 year old pug that's very old, and he tries to stand him up, and if the pug decides to stand, it's a Bones Day, which means you should like go after your dreams. You should like. <laughs> You know, if you've been wanting to play the lottery, get a ticket. If you need to get a charcuterie platter, this is the day to do it. But if it's a no bones day, you know, maybe don't take any risks. So that's what I'm saying. It's like reading the tea leaves. And it's so funny because we're just so broken right now from a year of uncertainty that we're looking to a dog's osteoporosis as a way to decide how our days go. But she wrote about, and like that's going, that is like trending really high right now. Because it's just a song about a thing that's already a phenomenon on the app. And it's so strange because, I mean, not to say it's not creative, but it's interesting because I feel like it's harder for what you do, stuff that's, like, really thought out and created for the purpose of just being great music and not to sell something. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I saw that guy who, like, that a big song that's been going around 
for a little while now is like, I don't want to have a niche or something like that. <laughs> and, yes. um, and that got really big on TikTok. But it's like, is that really, that was a guy writing a song about how his songs aren't like doing well. You know what I mean? And that's what does so well. And it's like, yeah, I definitely think his career has gotten a, a buff from that. Um, I just got back from Nashville. I was in Nashville for three or four days. And I love Nashville. I, I really like it there. It is the most disheartening place ever for a musician because I went from feeling like really special, you know, where I'm from in St. Louis and getting to, you know, people like, wow, you play music? That's so impressive. That's so cool to like everyone's talking about their guitar and, uh, you know, in this gig and like, yeah, I'm getting really close and I've got this management deal and I met up with one of my old students that I taught him throughout all of high school. Now he's going to Belmont School of Music down there. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him and he's like, yeah, man, I don't know. I just got this deal to be in this like boy band, but the contract isn't so good. And I'm like, oh my God, everything is just moving and shaking for people down here. But I do mm-hmm. not want to live here. The highways are all jacked up. That's so, okay, I was going to say, why don't you want to live in Nashville? It seems like so much is, but I guess it's like, I guess, you know, this is coming from some a comedian who lives in LA and regrets the decision every fucking day of my life. Uh. Because, <laughs> and just like you were saying, when I was in Austin, people would find out I did comedy and they go, oh, wow, you do, oh my God, when do you have shows? And it was so easy to get people to support you. And people in LA are so jaded because any night of the week, the biggest comedian can just be there. So why would they even pay to go to a show? And it's, yeah, when you're in a saturated market. I mean, last time I was in last time I was in Nashville, my Lyft driver could not help but tell me that he was a musician. And, yeah, it's uh, like, mm, uh, <laughs> mm, I'll give him this. He didn't play his songs for me. So at least he didn't like create like a, a hostage situation where it's like, are you going to get home safely? Depends. Do you like track two? So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it, see, it's like, I kind of went down there with this hope of, you know, meeting some people. I'm not necessarily pro-networking. I'm, I'm kind of anti, like, going to a place for the sake of, like, advancing your career. Like, I just like meeting people, and then if mm. things blossom from that, that's really great. I think it should be more tit-for-tat, as they say. Um, but, like, trying to strike up a conversation with anyone was, like soul sucking because they just be like yeah man i'm a musician too yeah it's fucking hard yeah like and i'm like i i i know let's just like talk we could just chat about it or something and i just you know people kind of weird about the covid down there so i wasn't trying to be all like let me take my mask off and show you my face and get to hanging out at bars and meeting people really that way which is like that's so much of what it is as a musician like going and seeing people play and kind of running Mm -hmm. into people organically like that but that is so funny because you just said that people were weird about COVID, and i remember being in nashville and be like god people don't give a fuck about COVID here yeah they don't care no they did not they didn't care i i was the one being weird for sure oh i thought you were saying that like they were more cautious i was like it didn't feel i mean the only place i had to i was the only place anyone else had a mask on was when I went to the African-American Museum of Music in Nashville. D- did you get a chance to go? Have you been before? No. I uh, I heard you talking about that on one of your podcasts not but like a week or two ago, and I didn't fucking go. Because basically, I spent an entire day 
driving back and forth between two shops comparing the, these two guitars and deciding whether or not I actually wanted to buy one. And then I was like, oh, shit, the concert that I drove down here to go to is in like an hour. I guess I'd better go. It's on the other side of town. <laughs> So I didn't do enough of the touristy things that I really would have liked to do. Now I know that people were wearing masks at that spot and I could have gone inside and gone check that out. It would have been, it, it was like one of the only socially distanced like places I actually felt comfortable. I, I don't remember if it was, was it on the podcast or was I just talking outside of it? But <laughs> the long and short of it, guys, is like the, the African-American Museum of music in Nashville is amazing. It is so, such a cool curated experience. You get this like, this bracelet that hooks up to like a QR system. So you get to play for someone who doesn't do music like us plebeians, us regular folk, <laughs> Ryan, It's so cool because there's like a part where you can like build a blues song using prompts and it kind of feels like um, one of those oh. make your own storybooks, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's really funny. So it's like, is it about a man or a woman? Is it in the city or the country? And then you're <laughs> like, uh, did he? Did her baby leave her, or does she owe somebody money? And so you just write a song. Um, so I like saved the song I wrote. Um, I got to learn about all this different music, but I was teasing. I think I was talking to Mike about this because this is very funny. Is my eyes could not help but focus on the white people who were there because <laughs> I just the guilt and the like. The just like oh, you told me. I heard you mention something about like people. You they had this whole tree of like you can see how this black musician influenced these people that you might know, et cetera, et cetera. And then people would list, pull it up and they would just listen to Eric Clapton or whoever <laughs> the fuck. straight to a white person. <laughs> there was so many, there was like this long tree of just like exciting black people they could have, and they were like, oop, I know that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And then I just, I really appreciated the ladies who tried to bring like a, a bachelorette party energy into the room oh and were there to have a good time because when it starts out, I mean, if you, if you follow the, the map chronologically, you start out at the, the slavery passage and like the incorporation of like African drums. And then you get into like Negro spirituals and then you get into like blues and and jazz and well gospel first gospel and then blues and, jazz. and so it keeps going from there and they beelined it past that and made it straight to hip-hop and it was like this is what we came for and they put on like salt and pepper push it but they're like taking off their headphones they're like just push it yeah and trying to dance and it's just like that it's is. okay to feel joy from time to time but i feel like if you go straight to the joy without the roots and you're like, yep, that's what hip hop is. Just fun, happy go lucky music to sell me car insurance. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, like when I was down there, and pardon my ignorance, but I just like I was it was just so it was so fucking white. And I and I was like, This is music city. And I don't mm -hmm. think that music really exists, at least not American music exists without black culture. And I'm like, mm. I literally was so <laughs> hungry going around all these different clubs and just finding like shitty country bands playing or like uh just like them playing radio shit like bro country that i i yeah. i had to stop myself from running up to the first black person i saw and being like where do black people go to listen to music in this city where do i go because in st louis like that's that's what you do you know what i mean like i go to clubs that are more you know i'm not like necessarily hanging over in east st louis as much but i'm i'm I go to the clubs where they play blues music and they, you know, it's at least 
white guys paying tribute to black people music and like trying to enjoy the tradition and like you know there's just so much more of that going on here in st louis and i felt Mm -hmm. kind of like a black hole uh in that like we have a weird issue in st louis too where it's you know culturally there's a little bit of a divide in like a lot of white people do play traditionally black music now and uh Mm -hmm. you know not to get all racy as the white guy in the room i feel like john oliver now but (laughs) he's always he's always acknowledged he's like i know i'm the greatest person to talk about uh women's rights right now on television because i'm a white (laughs) man or whatever but uh you know i would rather this than like i i can talk about race relations in this country in this country with anyone what i can't stand are people who literally think you cannot talk about race like i deal with that as a comedian where people will be like well it'd be racist if i said and and you're allowed to and i'm like no you're also allowed to talk about race we can discuss it it's a thing that exists it is yes it is a social construct but so are a lot of things and it's a social construct that affects our lives you whispering the word black and being afraid to bring it up, but then telling me that you you don't see me as black is far more insulting than saying there is a, there is an issue. Like you're you're noticing because here's the thing: you're talking about two southern cities, and you're noticing that yes, there is. If you are existing in places that already have segregation baked into the makeup of them, then everything that happens within those cities are also going to have a segregated feel. Like I, you know, relating this again to my own life because I have ADD, and that's literally how I think me 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 all the time but like comedy segregated especially Mm -hmm. in cities that were historically segregated it's just a fact there are black clubs and white clubs and so music's going to do the same thing the interesting overlap though is when you've got white artists performing for white people playing black music well and that's what's so interesting about st louis is i think it's this really weird meld because like being young and being interested in music, like going to school for jazz and this sort of stuff. Like I was going to clubs that I wouldn't say are like predominantly black, but it was like, you, you would just see like culture in the fucking audience. And that was, Mm -hmm. it was liberating as a dude from the County where in St. Louis, where, I mean, we're actually one of the first cities ever to separate and divide the County from the city to where they're not two of the same thing. They're separate municipalities. And that was kind of the start of our segregation. And actually the start of segregation is in a really big way in the whole country. St. Louis was like, you know, yay, we were the purveyors of that. Um, Yikes. It, but like, you know, now it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. I wouldn't say it's like all white audiences at these clubs that I go to. But uh, I also think there's just this certain, we've seen a lot of like, like in, in St. Louis, I would say, I'm not going to speak holy because I don't know fucking everything. But also, like, black cultures moved on to, like, hip-hop and all these different, you know, kind of newer genres. And now you're seeing, like, old white guys, like, playing blues music. And they're good. And they, they care about it. And they they give credit to black artists that made and founded this music. Um, but it's just an interesting kind of weird thing we have going on here. And we're it's kind of some growing pains, too, culturally, right? Of, like... yeah people trying to be like well i just really appreciate the culture but i don't want to whitewash it and i don't want to take it over um Mm -hmm. and so how do we you know do that uh appropriately without appropriating if that makes sense yeah and it's it is a a tricky balance i think intent means a lot but intent can get lost Mm -hmm. and also it's like you can intend for this to be like 
this great space and then you you know as a person of color you you show up in a space and you're like oh i am the only black person here this feels weird this feels high pressure <laughs> that's just one of those things that like white people really can't mitigate that you can't control how many whites descend upon a space but like i just like this is not quite <laughs> the same thing but i remember going to see lizzo and being super excited and then me and my friend were the only two black people there and Wild. yes and this was like early in lizzo's career like 2016 so like before good as hell had like become big or 2017 and the thing is sometimes white people in an effort to be inviting can be very overbearing towards black people in a space and they like behave with so much over familiarity it's like it's very strange it's just like either either it's staring and whispering and, and grabbing their purses or it's just like, hey, teach me how to dance, which is just like, I know they think that is such a fun invitation, but you're literally saying, I require a service from you for free because I feel that I can tell you what to do in your free time. And every, like so many people of color have these experiences. And so sometimes when it comes to like music and relaxation and things that are just fun, we're like, who do I? Ryan, we're friends. I can just say this out loud like I would say to my husband. Sometimes I'm just like, ooh, do I have the energy to be black in front of white people right now? And oh, yeah. <laughs> I, to I totally understand that. I mean, you know, I also even going to school in my field, it was like there were only like two or three people of color in my whole fucking program for jazz. Mm -hmm. And like I understood that it was like, uh, you know, being young and from the county and not having a ton of experience around black people on the regular, it was just like, I would catch myself trying to be inviting or whatever the fuck. And then it's like, Oh, just like fucking be a human being. And it's cool. And you grow up and you kind of learn that. And also like, I, like I said, I get experience like playing more of these clubs and doing blues music and playing these traditions. And then like one of those guys actually invited me. I played at his church for like a couple of years and I would be the only white guy in the room, which was fucking yeah. cool. Like that's an experience I think white people need to uh, mm -hmm. just get because it's yeah. like, oh, actually like you just don't, yeah, you can't control the amount of white people that descend upon a space, which I think is the best <laughs> phrasing of that ever. That's amazing. <laughs> that's very American. And uh, getting to pl like play for a black church like that mm -hmm. and be the only white guy was really cool and i remember one time i'm playing and i was behind the youth group and they're singing and it would just be me on piano and everybody was really spread out and the pastor got on the stage and he said you know everybody was so spread out and he's like come on let's all get in close together we're all black people here and all the <laughs> kids started snickering kind of <laughs> laughing I was and they're like, oh, yeah, it was funny. It was funny. And I was la I was laughing so hard. And he turned around and was like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry, man. I was like, bro, it's cool. Like, it's fine. I'm just here. Uh, it's, I'm, you know, I was, a, that's an experience I think white people just like, most people just don't fucking get at all, ever. You know what's so funny is I'm thinking about, I, I, did, I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you saying? No, that's, I mean, that's it. I'm just saying like, white people just need uh, at least once or twice in their life where, Maybe not like a specified moment, but like for a semi longer period of time, like a month or something where like every day they got to go be the one white person in a fucking room and just understand what that's like. And then be like, oh, actually, it's not that weird if y'all don't make it weird or we don't make it weird. Or... Exactly. No, I think that's important. I think that's huge. Kind of like how just 
being a server helps you understand like how to be a better person. Like there's just a lot of, a lot of white people will never have an experience where they're the only white person in the room. And they just, they can't even speak from that perspective. Yeah. But what's so funny about the, we're all black people here is what I, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious what you thought they meant in that moment, because it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Cause I'm wondering, like, I feel like you're not this person, but like the reactionary Trumplican white person would hear that and go, oh, oh, so you don't want to get white germs on you? But in actuality, it's because white people can be so freaking skittish about being around black people. So it's like, no one's going to think you're stealing from them. No one's going to say you smell weird or dirty. No one's going to treat you like he's like, we're all black people here. We're family. No yeah. one's going to treat you bad. And that's the kind of thing that would that would that would trigger white guilt in someone if they want to like center their whiteness in the space which a lot it's hard not to do it, it's hard not for it's it's really hard for a lot of white people to not center their whiteness because it's the default it's just kind of how you function um not you personally but like well maybe me sometimes i don't know maybe sometimes <laughs> i do I, i'm not like a perfect person i think that's also like just fucking it is just like uh i'm not a prejudiced awful person but like I might be racist sometimes and that's not like uh and like you said like intent is everything that just like comes from like uh I don't know real like situationally realizing things and having experiences mm-hmm. and, and like being human that's why I think like so many old white guys are so afraid to be called racist because they also in their mind think I'm calling you prejudice which like I might not like when I tell my mom, I'm like, that's racist. She's like, I'm not racist. I'm like, well, I'm not giving you a noun. I'm just saying what the fuck you just did is fucking weird. So don't do it. Like you're, I'm not like making a modifier to you. I'm just saying like, this is your, you just said a thing that's fucking weird. And actually you saying that shit to me growing up has like, might make me weird or like would make my grand, my children, your grandchildren weird. You get what I'm saying? Like, I just don't oh, yeah. raise my kids weird. <laughs> no, you're 100% right. Oh, gosh, you just hit on a fantastic point. Um, Damon Young is a great writer from Very Smart Brothers website. And they have this, he had this piece years and years ago that really stuck with me. And it was about why it's so hard to talk about racism with white people sometimes. Because they want to see things in terms of who they are and not what they've done. And I think a lot of people work this way. I mean, for example, if you t- you tell a guy... Like it just in general, human beings are triggered this way where we're like, you cheated on me. And they're like, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a cheater. And it's like, yeah, but you cheated on me. If someone steals your wallet and you say you steal my wallet, are you going to focus on telling them you're a thief and you have thieving ways and you are made badly as a thief? Or are you going to say, I want my wallet back? I think the problem is sometimes we try to like uh, focus. People get so hung up on a label you know, and they want to tell you, I'm not a racist, this, that, and the other. And it's like, yeah, but the thing, I think what problem is sometimes is the word racist has become so inflammatory to white people that they're so worried about the consequences of being called racist that they're not thinking about the consequences of being racist and yeah. like the, the hurt it causes other people. But That's it's, like a it's hard because I always tell people, I'm like, you can have prejudices and not necessarily be prejudiced. Or like, I, this is why I love the term problematic, actually. I can say what you said was problematic because, like just the other day, um, my husband nicely said something like, he was like, oh, you have, you know, well, I was complaining about my hair. And he was like, oh, you know, you have good hair. And I was like, you know, the word good hair is a loaded term, babe. We don't really say that. And he's like, you're right, you're right. That's it. 
but like the wrong person will be like so you're saying i hate black people hair (laughs) you're not filing yeah you're not filing for divorce because your husband said good hair and you're like oh that's it he's that's his third strike we made it like seven years i can't believe it but i found out he's racist like that's yeah it's just you know i get i get it i get it it's people are super punishment oriented sometimes and that can lead to this like chaotic thought process so this has been such an interesting conversation about music and race and all that good stuff so talking more with you because i just love hearing your thought process on like the songs that you love and you're so educated about music how does a person like you who knows so much about music and creates music yourself choose five songs because that's what we do choose five songs to tell your life story was this hard um i think it's definitely difficult when i thought about it a little bit it's like it's easy i think to pick your five favorite songs you know but in terms of picking the five songs that tell the story of my life um that that comes a little bit easier right because i gotta be like well some of these i don't like so much anymore but what they mean to me in my life is bigger than how much i listen to them now or or you know what i mean or what they've the path they put me down you know so here comes some really white ass shit (laughs) and that uh this is a safe space to be white okay (laughs) i really appreciate that we're you know we're running low these days. I don't know where to go anymore. Um, since people can't see my face, that's a very satirical statement. He's um, kidding. He's kidding. Y'all. That's why I'm, I'm laughing. I'm kidding. We know. I know. Please get me. I swear. Um, the first song I'm going to have to say, it's a banger. It's coming back. I'm really proud of the kids these days. I'm going to have to say, Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. When I was a young boy. <laughs> and I love it. Thank you. You just, okay. How old are you again? I'm 26. Okay. So you're younger than me. Okay. So this song comes out and you're like 13. Um, 13. I decided to turn on MTV because I heard that's what you do when you're a teenager. This is, I'm going to tell you the anecdote straight up. I was in this room upstairs at my parents' house. Um, and, uh, I was like, yeah, fucking MTV. That's what you do when you're a teenager. I'm so grown. Let me turn it on. And um, as a side note, I was starting to develop a vitamin D deficiency because I was staying inside watching a lot of Iriyasha that I had pirated, which is an anime. I had pirated it off the internet. I'm not an anime. I'm not a weeb now, but I was real into that shit. And uh, so I'm watching. And uh, I'm I'm getting more and more pale as as the days go on it's getting deeper into the winter and uh i also got fucking mono so i think that's why i got really depressed i didn't and i didn't get diagnosed till much later this song comes on they play the music video and it changed my fucking life so <laughs> to be to pardon my french but oh my god watching this music video was life-changing for me and i don't know it just was like whoa this is like emotional music i've been listening to classic rock and a bunch of, you know, like ACDC and like Guns N' Roses was kind of my favorite band. Or like my very first favorite band was The Police. Um, but that was all stuff that was kind of handed down to me. Or like I found from my parents' CD collection. And this this was like, oh, this music is like mine. Like it's, it's for me. It's for my generation. And I bought the fucking jacket. 
I bought everything. I bought into the, I cut my hair. I, uh, I had an emover over as they, as they, uh, styled it in, you know, what you call it, rock band, that, that game. I had an emover over and I dyed it red. It went over my eye. I changed my whole life. Wait, because so that one just song. the, was all your hair red or just the part just that the was Just the part like... that swooped down. Oh, okay, yeah. and, and and Ryan has beautiful wavy curly hair. Um, were you flat ironing it? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> My mother is a hairdresser, so every morning, because I had to be at school at six thirty for jazz band. Also, <laughs> my mom, since she was a hairdresser, she thought it was fun. She was like, "Oh, my kids into some cool like hip shit." So she would get up, and while I ate cereal, she would like iron my hair or teach me how to iron it. And she's the greatest mother alive. Um, Except for In maybe my mind, your mom. She has that. She has that chief flat iron with a comb behind it, right? And it's. Oh my <laughs> god! Yeah. Oh yeah. She. Uh. Yeah. And then I started ironing it myself as I got a little bit deeper into that and was like, "Mom, stop ironing my hair for me." Yeah, I had. I had flat iron. Yep, I straightened it out, and I shaved all the sides. You know, so it was short. It was kind of like a mohawk that always went down in front of my face. And yeah, every I pirated so much of that music. Oh my god. <laughs> I had all the extended release cuts, the B-sides. I had every music video on my iPod Classic. And, uh, oh, yeah, I went deep, 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 deep into that wormhole of, like, emo music. And, uh, but definitely that, it was, that was the the life-changing moment for me. So, do I listen to that song a lot now? No, not at all. Absolutely not. <laughs> but is it is it a, an imperative song to my life story? Yeah, absolutely. What instruments were you playing at this time when you started listening to them? Uh, the guitar and the trumpet. Oh. Pretty much just those. So, you know, the marching band thing was cool, resonated with me because the trumpet. And then the guitar parts of these songs resonated with me because they're really, really, really easy to play. <laughs> so. I remember loving this stuff and being like, you know, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't cool for black kids to like that. <laughs> but I was. I still liked it. It was the the to me it was the dramatics, man. The videos felt so cinematic and like they just told a story and they were super intense. I just love that. So oh much. yeah, it was it was yeah. I think the real sense of drama really did it for me. And that's I don't know. That shit's just cool as hell. Um, so before we move to your next track, I'm thought since you're you were into anime so much so that you made yourself sick. Like you developed. Yes, yeah, I got sick off anime. Yeah, that's it. So I take it you appreciate comics and graphic novels. Do you watch the Umbrella Academy? I don't. I read it because I knew that Gerard Way made it. So I was I was way into that before it was ever a Netflix series, and I got out of comic books before like that. That comic died, you know, by the time I was getting out of high school, even. So I read a little bit of it. And then, yeah, I got, I mean, as I got into high school, I was kind of like, dude, you gotta wake up, bro. <laughs> and I, uh, I guess segueing into my second song, into that, I would say I had a friend who was like, man, you've been really depressed for like three years. Do you ever think it's because you listen to all this emo crap? <laughs> and I was like, he was like, aren't you kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy? And I thought... No, certainly not. But at this point, I'm kind of like mowing lawns around the neighborhood. And so I was listening to a lot of music while I would mow lawns. And um, and he was like, well, you should listen to this band. 
And I think, you know, it might just change your opinion on that. And he sent me Switchfoot. Uh, are you familiar with Switchfoot? We were meant to live for so much more. <laughs> I'll get into a short story about that band, but <clears throat> he sent me that song. The one that really hit me very hard was the song Stars by Switchfoot, which came out on the record after that. Um, you're Ooh. talking about uh, Beautiful Letdown. That's what Meant to Live was on. This is off of Nothing is Sound. I've seen Switchfoot 15 times. So I think they are probably a quality band. I uh, think they're probably good. My brain compartmentalizes them as just the like just the nerdiest shit. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean it is and I'll so again this guy who got me into this music um had started his own band which kind of was on its way to being like a switchfoot knockoff band and um i really wanted to be in it and i had played guitar i was not very good at guitar but i started learning piano so that i could mm -hmm. be the piano player in this band uh because there in switchfoot there's a guy who plays the piano and the guitar depending on what they need and so i kind of just got better eventually got into that band and we were like switchfoot disciples we would travel we would see him everywhere um this band was really really close to being on a management company for the band mercy me do you know the song i can only imagine wow so we're getting we're getting deeper into this christian so, rabbit hole it's, i it's was gone from subject it's gone from like the suggestion of christianity to the the full main course dinner That's oh like, yeah Oh, yeah. So I, I was really deep into that. And we actually ended up having a relationship with Switchfoot because they knew we were this band that was kind of like on the hinge of this record contract of sorts. And um, they, you know, we'd send them demos. We had like rapport with these guys. I would play Frisbee wow. with them when they came into town. We would now I'm doubt it's been almost 10 years now. It has been exactly 10 years, actually, since we were doing that. But like we used to DM them on Twitter, just ask questions and they would respond. And like knew, they knew who we were. And whenever we'd run into each other, it'd be like, oh, what's up, guys? And like we would toss a Frisbee around and talk about music and uh, just got to know them. And it was like, you know, it was just starting to get to this point where it's like, OK, we always see you guys in St. Louis. Now we're seeing you and we're all in Wisconsin. So what's the deal? And it was just like, oh, we're a band that's the same instrumentation as you guys. And we happen to make music a lot like yours. And um, they were really, really, I mean, that was that was kind of, you know, life changing in its own sense. So that's why I got to add Switchfoot to the list, because they were really supportive in my musical career and like telling me to go for it. And um, just really, really sweet people to take the time to spend with kids like that and be so that kind. That is so. amazing because it seems like there's so much more community to music. Like they realized that you guys were molding yourselves after them and were like, that's cool. Thanks for like liking what we do. Yeah. If two comedians did that shit, like if I show up and a bitch has on the same color as me, I'm like, how <laughs> dare you? You have a joke about a husband? I wrote husbands. You know, like... <laughs> And I think they ultimately knew that we weren't going to like, we probably weren't going to make it because we were so young. We were like late high school. Some people were early 20s, but they knew that we were going to all kind of go on to keep doing the thing. And they kind of got that we were more dedicated than other younger people who were just like playing guitar. It's like we were traveling and setting up contracts with record companies and like sending demos to Atlantic and like doing some real 
shit for an 18-year-old, you know, for me at the time. And then, you know, just the funny side note about that band never happened. Nothing happened with it because the management company wanted us to play 100 shows. They had recently had a young boy band, like, quit because they were too young and didn't want to fill out their contract because they realized they didn't actually want to do music. So for us, they added this ultimatum thing that was like, well, why don't you play 100 shows and we'll keep in touch? And then we did the 100 shows and they were like, all right, well, wow, you guys actually did it. Why don't you? Why don't we come up and we'll sign the contracts and look over everything and uh, and we'll talk. And we'd already done a couple meetings with them. We kind of argued over where to do the show so much that we broke up trying to do this show to impress the company. <laughs> so it was it was heartbreaking in that sense. But I'm happy that I don't tour for a christian music label and like open up for a giant christian music band i'd be playing stadiums opening up for mercy me but i'd probably still be doing that like now like 10 years later and my career has gone a wildly different direction question Mm -hmm. wow first of all a hundred shows together and 101 was the one that was like nope can't do it two um that is was that your first breakup as a band yeah that was my first band, really, that I had ever been in, you know, that wasn't what, like a school thing. What does it feel like to break up from a band? Is it like a relationship? Exactly like a, like a relationship. Exactly. Except it's even like weirder. Like I wrote one song about not being invited to the bass player's wedding and like a lot of the other guys were. But I went to college a little bit further away. So, you know, that was weird. But I still see that guy sometimes. It's not like bad blood. It's not like we really hate each other or anything. I still see all those guys every once in a while around town. But it's just like we all kind of had different goals in mind, too. I wanted to go to college. The drummer wanted to go to college. We thought going to school for music was the best thing at the time. And they really wanted us to not do that and, like, double down on the band a little bit more. So there were all these different stressors and strains and growing pains. Um, But, yeah, I mean, no, it definitely is exactly like losing a loved one. You just get to keep kissing somebody else because you're, you know, you probably have a real girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever the heck you're into, you know. Uh, It was fine. It was really fine. I think also it didn't hit me so bad because I was like freelancing at that point and like meeting a lot of people in college. I also had like some other uh, environments to get into, you know, so. Yeah, so you, you kind of had your, your feet in different directions and were trying different mm-hmm. things. That is so interesting. Do bands ever have, like, custody issues when it comes to musical ideas? Like, let's say that, like, you write a riff on a song that you guys have together, and then later on in a band, you sample something that sounds the same. How yeah, do you that, like, work that out? That happens a lot. You can't. You can only copyright melodies and lyrics in terms of music. Mm-hmm. You can't really copyright chord progressions. Um, a riff can sometimes be considered a melody, you know, or a counter melody, uh, counter melodies are harder to make like legal claims to, but I mean like ultimately musicians are broke, so they can't really sue anybody or do anything about it. Like, so who cares? Uh, I mean, you'll get like, you'll have a little beef, but no, I didn't really use any, I mean, I didn't use any of that stuff, um, when I left and, you know, I mean, it's just in a sense of good form you don't like you know since stuff is unreleased and there aren't not really copyrights laid down or anything like that it's just like out of goodwill you don't just like steal a song now i mean if you if you have recorded proof that you wrote a song like you have a demo on your phone with the date attached to it and someone came out with that song like a year or two later after a band broke up like you could sue the shit out of people for that mm. you know That's what i mean but 
most people don't do that unless there's like real money to be made already. You know what I mean? Because unless you can pay a lawyer, you know, yeah. it's just not going to, it's not worth it. <clears throat> All right. So track number three. Track number three, I will, I will insert my jazz uh, idiom here. I will have to say, also I'm going to feel really bad about this because we had this wonderful talk about race, but I'm about to choose like one of the only white jazz guys. Uh, Chet Baker. This is a space to be your... <laughs> You are allowed to be white here. I know. I just think it's funny. I just like knocking on myself. Um, I'm going to call this episode, You're Allowed to Be White. That's awesome. I love it. I No, I don't want to attract those kind of people. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, you're going to get a lot of Ben Shapiro runoffs on this show. And they're going to like this episode or maybe not when they listen to that first 30 minutes. Okay. Okay. Tell um, me about this white ass jazz song real quick. Okay. No. So, so Chet Baker. Mm -hmm. uh but not for me he's a jazz vocalist and trumpet player amazing guy uh i mean maybe not the best person in the world most jazz musicians weren't really great people but he was kind of a womanizer but who wasn't back then you know an anthropologist examines people in the period of the time not their not relative to your own so Chet Baker, but not for me. I just love the song because it's just really, it was another side of depression for me that wasn't just like heavy guitars. It's very much this guy being like, they're writing songs of love, but not for me. Ooh, uh, mm, yeah, he's getting left out on a lot of crap. Uh, it's just not, he's just not included. And also, the trumpet solo in this song is one of the first ones that I ever ripped by ear. Like, I just sat down and I was like, press and rewind on the cd player over and over so i spent a lot a lot a lot of time with it and it's just so melodic and so beautiful his voice is very smooth um one of my ex-girlfriends always thought he sounded like a woman i think she's wrong mm -hmm. i hate you if you're if she listens to this he's not a woman but it'd be cool if he was too anyway awesome <laughs> awesome musician um he played with dizzy gillespie and Miles Davis and was like kind oh, of wow. a, uh, you know, an underling of some of those guys. And once actually, I just found this out. He got nominated like the best trumpet player by like the big jazz magazine at the time, sometime in like the late fifties over Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie. And he wrote Miles Davis a letter and was like, this is wrong. This isn't correct. I should not be at the top of this list. This is some bullshit and it should be you. Um, and Miles Davis said, well, you got 20 other people to write a letter to. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, just going back to our big, like, racial discussion, it's funny because when you look at this piece of paper, he's one of the only white trumpet players on this list. And he knew it was because of that that more people were voting for him uh, just because of this cultural divide. He was like, it's not me. It's this isn't it's not me. There's a lot of people who came before me. I mean, he was over Louis Armstrong. And like I said, Dizzy and Miles and so many great trumpet players that probably just had some young white kids who were like afraid to vote for them because they thought their mom would give them a lashing or something. That's so interesting. You know, it's funny how music is one of those things where people are like, oh, whose idea belongs to who? Boxing is the one thing that just flat out says, like you ever heard the expression great white hope? No. P people in boxing have been hoping for a great white hope for a long time a, a boxer <laughs> like since like the 30s or 40s oh, because yeah. they just could not find a white guy who could beat all of these not white people and they'll just they would it was something that would just be not he could be america's great white hope and it's like, that's awesome 
so no one says it out loud but there is this kind of thing where people are like yes a white guy succeeding at this thing other not white people are succeeding like you know it's been a while since baseball had a great white hope or like you know yeah i know that was that was like their safe space for a minute there now it's like we're whittling it down to just hockey i guess it's pretty much yeah I I wish I had some athleticism to take something from a white person, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I am I don't I'm not I'm not so you guys are safe with me. Um, I'm not taking anything. From you. But uh, that is so interesting. I that kind of reminds me of Adele, you know, in her Grammy speech saying that she felt Beyonce should have won because Lemonade was a more personal album, or like Macklemore. Maybe the Adele thing, Adele versus Beyonce is a little bit more like mm, you know, it's preference, but. Macklemore versus Kendrick Lamar was one of those situations where it was like, come on. Yeah. Come oh on. my God. I mean, was that when To Pimp a Butterfly came out? Yes. That's like an art. That's like an art record. Like that is, I mean, it's one of, it's, yeah, it's one of the most artistic works of the century. And, uh, I mean, that was like, dude, jazz kids were on that record. That was like, whew, because it was so, it was this grand melding of, you know, analog sounds and the digital stuff and like sampling beats, but also having like, he had like all real musicians play on that. He hired a bunch mm -hmm. of like jazz musicians to play on that. And like, it's all very free form. And oh my God, that record is insane. I don't really like a lot of the other Kendrick Lamar. I did not like Damn at all. I know a lot of people did, wasn't like into Damn. it. I didn't like Damn, but that's just my mm -hmm. shit, you know? That's just my problem. I just didn't like it. I think it's good. I think the idea of doing a, like a record where you like kind of copycat a bunch of different people and be like, I'm actually going to do it better than you is awesome. I think that's genius. Um, mm -hmm. That is like, I thought that was really cool. I just don't like the songs. All of To Pimp a Butterfly is insane. Yeah, it truly a, I did is. know it won a Pulitzer. It, it deserves to win it again. Yes, because I can find lame. the exact song so no one's screaming at me. No, it didn't. Actually, it was this, I don't know, Pulitzer, Kendrick Lamar. But I know that's a thing. I know he won for uh, lyrics for, huh. No, it was for damn. Huh, never mind. <laughs> oh, well, now I'm bummed. My bad. Because they probably just felt bad because, uh, you know, because they're like, oh, we should have given one to Pimp a Butterfly. But actually, I think that year, I think it was like between... It, that might have been the year it was between Tom Waits and Bob Dylan. And mm -hmm. I think I think Bob Dylan won, which, like, Bob Dylan's awesome, but Tom Waits is a little bit more poetic. Well, when it comes opinion. to awards, nothing is really based on just the art itself that's being evaluated. It's never that. It Like, most people get an award because they have accomplished so much leading up to it that we're like, yeah, this is great. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is, they're, like, was, was, was Monsters Balls? Monsters Balls <laughs> was Monsters Ball Holly Berry's greatest performance absolutely fucking not had she earned an Oscar by then yes yeah like, or like Leo with The Revenant like I think Revenant's awesome but like so many movies that he could have had written on his Oscar before that that I think would have you know definitely cinched it a little sooner for him but it was just like mm, uh, mm, uh, mm, gotta give that Denzel this gotta do this gotta do you know to Pimp like, a Butterfly is, is brilliant. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. And that's just that's just a cool comparison to what you were talking about with um with Chet Baker and him like recognizing that he was being honored when he wasn't necessarily deserved because of our fascination with great white hopes 
in yes. America. It is, <laughs> it is something. I love that. We... I'm going to use that all the time now. <laughs> um, that's, oh, yeah. you know, God bless America. That's funny. <laughs> now let's take it to track number two. So getting a little further on, as I was getting deeper into college, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite bands that really brought together the whole, like, uh, you know, jazzy kid thing, like, let's be experimental and weird, and let's be kind of emo, but, like, not all the time. Let's just have this dark element of things is, let's say, 15 Step by Radiohead, um, which is a very interesting song. It came out in 2008. So I remember when this song came out. I was young. I was in middle school, but I kind of thought... I heard about Radiohead from Metro Station, and, like, you know, I didn't really like it because, like, this is nothing like Metro Station. And uh, and so I kind of, like, glossed over Radiohead at that point. And then... What um Metro Station? Metro Station was, like... Uh, what's her name? Are you... Shake It? Yeah. Yeah. I, heard, I mean, that song was big, and it was, like, you know, the Cyrus family. They quoted Radiohead as an influence of theirs. And I thought that song was good, and I was a middle schooler, so I was just like, "Yeah, I love it." Checked out Radiohead. Didn't this is I was like, "This is nothing like Shake It," <laughs> as you can probably tell. I was like, "This is nothing like that." So, moved on. Um, and as I got a little older, I got deeper into Radiohead, like way deeper into it, and really started to enjoy it. I actually performed this song on my senior recital. I did like I wrote like a jazz arrangement of it have to find that i'd love to hear that again because i never actually listened to it but uh yeah i mean this was for my band that i formed in college my first band that i fronted and led myself this was a radiohead was a huge influence and this song in particular was just like it's in five four instead of four four but it it's it's got this really interesting like groove to it that you can dance to and uh I don't know. It's just, it's very compelling, very compelling. Um, and it's dark and it's spooky and it just kind of indoctrinated me into the whole Radiohead zeitgeist. Um, so really so you didn't start with creep like the rest of us. No, I heard that song and I thought it was awful. And then I found out <laughs> later that they said that that song was awful and that they don't like it. They don't play that song anymore. I've read that recently and I was like, but why? But I can totally get it. I think when a song just gets bigger than your band, you know, like, yeah, the creep guys, Radiohead. (laughs) That's kind of how it is. People can resent it. Your Metro Station story cracks me up because I feel like a lot of artists will, I I feel like it's kind of like when I ask people to do this show, like we want, we all want to sound smart. So we will list references and like, oh yeah, I'm influenced by the smartest, greatest thing. And then what you put out is nothing like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking Metro Station is nothing like Radiohead. That is such an interesting, yeah, no. yeah we're influenced. That's, I mean, that was the first time I'd heard someone, like, mention Radiohead, I guess, really, in, like, my modern little, like, teeny bopper, you know, uh, pop zeitgeist was hearing about. I didn't even really like Metro Station that much, but I just, that was, like, who I heard say, like, Radiohead's the band, man. And then, like, I had heard Switchfoot say it, and I was like, man, all these guys that I like keep saying Radiohead's cool, but none of them sound anything like Radiohead. 
what the hell is up with that? So then I listened to it, though, and I was like, as I got through, I mean, the huge Radiohead catalog, I was like, actually, there's a lot of stuff here that I like. So very formative for me. Um, I got to say, though, for that number one slot, I had that another. That was hard. I have two songs that pop in my head. And I'll I'll do an honorable mention. How about that? After the fact, just to and just to tell a a quick story. But uh, oh, that's that's so difficult. Um, <laughs> my this honorable... I have a hard time getting guests because people are like, "Ooh, let uh, me think on it." <laughs> yeah. Um. I got. I mean, I would be very remiss if I don't mention my number one guy. Uh, but I, I would also be remiss if I didn't mention this song. Cheryl Crow, If It Makes You Happy, is my honorable mention. I perform that song a lot. And it's just like, it's. I just, uh, a friend of mine started playing that out. And then it kind of became the St. Louis standard where like everybody in our little scene of musicians would somehow play that song somewhere in the set. And then I started doing it on my own and when I played with other bands they'd ask me to sing something I'd do it and people would be like how does that little dude sing so high I'm not that short I'm not little but I they're like how does this guy sing that high and I do it I do it in the same key I do it in the same register I sing that damn song I'm not gonna give lie give us less than seven seconds so I won't get sued because we gotta hear it now I can't be this loud in the uh, in the damn there's people working outside I'll be really loud if I sing it I promise if you want okay you go to my Instagram. I'll put a video up of me singing it. Um, I, oh my gosh, I just I really like singing this song, and it means something to everybody. So honorable mention to Cheryl Crow because everybody knows that song, and it's mm -hmm. just very, uh, I don't know. It just, it's it's something for everyone, and it everybody knows it, and it's a really easy chorus to everybody sing together. So. It's one of few songs that I can cover, and I know that everybody's going to start singing along with me, and it mm -hmm. it means it means a lot to feel that energy, you know. Yeah, that's one of those choruses that even if you don't care for like acoustic vibe, whatever music, like if this is not your genre, when it's great vocals and a good melody that just sticks in your head, it's just it's great. Oh, it's eternal. That's a song that, you know, anybody could do in any setting. You could do it as a hip hop song. You could do it as a techno song. You could do it whatever. And it's gonna it's it's gonna last forever. I um, love Cheryl Crow, but I used to hate Soak Up the Sun so much <laughs> that it made me like think I hated her. Oh God. There's just every good nineties artist had like their one song that ended up in a shampoo commercial. That would make you despise them, like when, like when Jewel was in her voices in the commercial for that razor. Like, oh yeah, the razor. I mean, it was a razor. It's called the Intuition Razor, and like, it's, it's, oh. I have that razor because it ha comes with soap attached, so it's really great for traveling because you just get it wet and you don't need shaving cream. Okay, I was gonna you say that know. sounds like some pink tax kind of bullshit a little bit but it sounds like it functionally actually makes a lot of sense it makes a ton of sense men's razors should come with the soap attached too we get we have less waste i've actually just... i've used that razor that you're talking about because i had it at, one of my girlfriends had it for a little while and i definitely used it. i was like this shit's dope we're gonna it's, get and the handle's really wide like it's really you know shout out 
to is it Gillette? It's probably not Gillette. Shout out to the please send me raisins. It's Jillian. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Jillian. I don't think that's right either. That's uh you know, that's the no, that's their female companion uh subsidiary. <laughs> is it really? That's no, great. I wish though I should call me for marketing. Sponsor Jasmine and then call me to do your marketing and we'll we'll hook it up. <laughs> Um, I think you have to know the name of the company you're asking for money from. <laughs> like you have to at least know. Okay, so that is if if it makes you happy is our. Um, oh, by the way, it's chic, chic intuition for women. Okay, um, love it. <laughs> if if uh, if if it makes you happy is our our honorable mention. What is our number one? Our number favorite song, one, or at least our song that tells our story. Your story. This is um I'm. It's Maybe I'm Amazed by Paul McCartney. Oh, it's a great song. Um, Paul McCartney is, at this point in my life for the past couple of years, has been probably my biggest influence for a minute. And not just the Beatles stuff. I mean, I do love the Beatles. I think as a songwriter, you can't like knock the Beatles, no matter how hip it is to knock the Beatles. Uh, you can't knock them for it. It's that's like great classic songwriting but paul mccartney's solo material after the band breaks up is incredible and the thing that made this song hit me like again in the face after i fell in love with it for like a second or third time um i was on tour in europe and i was going through listening to all of his solo stuff and i was riding around on a lot of trains in the netherlands which is cool you get this like vibe and i was there to play music so just very inspired. And I was planning my kind of uh, solo debut and how I was going to start recording some of my own stuff and how I was going to quit beating around the bush. I'm going to start making my own music. And like my college band was kind of breaking up and I was, I play a lot of instruments. So I was just like, man, I want to do this myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to depend on other people, at least for a little while. Um, and I, I want to be self-sufficient. And I fell in love with that song and Paul McCartney's first solo record. I'd started listening to that a lot more. And then I found out a little bit later that he actually plays every single instrument on that song. He he wrote and recorded that all by himself in a shed on his property. And he mixed it and he made it. And that is probably one of his most iconic solo songs. And that was the thing that was like, all right, you can do this. Like that was a, that was just huge for me to be like, I can, I can do this. I can do it. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm very deep down. I listen to Paul McCartney probably at least once or twice a day, every day, all the time. That's so amazing. So that inspired you to not only go solo, but find a way to incorporate all of your skills singing and the different instrumentation and writing and really just do something by yourself, which I'm sure was such a big leap because you started out doing bands and then decided to just do things by yourself. Was that, do you ever feel any like anxiety about that or like kind of want to go back to a band or is it like, this is exactly what I want to do. I'm in my purpose. Um, I have friends that I call when like my band plays out because I can't do everything by myself live. Obviously I don't like playing with tracks. Um, so, I mean, I have, like, close confidants that I went to school with and grew up with and um, people that play in other bands with me. You know, I still do a lot of sideman work. Like I said, I was on tour in Europe. Like, I play in a soul R&B band that I play trumpet in, and that's just, like, I'm just totally a sideman. 
So I have these things where I can kind of like, uh, you know, it's not my circus, not my monkeys, you know, that kind of, that kind of deal. And it's like, I'm just here to play and show up and do the thing and get paid. Um, and then I have these like more passion projects of mine, like being the solo stuff now. And it's cool because I have all these close friends and music that I've developed over the years that, you know, now they're kind of like, oh yeah, we believe in Ryan's shit. We believe that that's good songwriting and that that's going to do something. And I get them paid, you know, I do what I can to like take care of everybody. Um, but it's fun now being able to, to like, since I work with professionals, I know all professionals, I can like create a demo by myself and I can work on songs all by myself. And then instead of like having rehearsals, like every week, like kind of some other bands do, I can send my stuff out and be like, learn the parts and show up. And I show up and they all learn my songs and they learn all the parts and they, and they, you know, parts that they think could be better. They play it better because I trust them and I give them the, their own artistry to, you know, have room to do that and do their own thing. So yeah, I, uh, I wouldn't say it's as nerve wracking, I guess, for other people to go solo. I know other people who have been a part of really big bands and then, uh, they go solo and that ruins, you know, they're like kind of their self-esteem in a sense, because it's like, Oh, I was at the top and now I'm starting all the way at the bottom and I have to work my way back up again. My career really hasn't gone that far, thankfully. So (laughs) I don't have to feel so knocked down. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, just, but the the freedom and the inspiration Paul has given mm-hmm. me to just go for it and not be afraid to, like, you know, I've been mixing records for several years, 10 years maybe, and uh, and be, not being afraid to be like, you know what, actually, I'm just going to put that out on Spotify now and not be like, oh, I'm not really an engineer. I don't, I don't work for some really big wig studio, so I'm too scared to put it out. Um you know, he just, Paul McCartney was kind of like zero fucks given. And he, he had definitely a high standard that he had already set for himself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, being part of the biggest group in the world. Yeah. I mean, uh, and he did all of this at a, at home studio by himself. Um, and he's done three of those. Actually, he finished the trilogy in the pandemic. He did a third one that's called, called McCartney three. He did the first one in the seventies. 71 70 maybe and then the second one sometime in the 80s and then when the pandemic happened he decided to do a third one and he did it all by himself again and uh i really liked that one too i love all of them so in three different decades across i guess like 40 or 50 years he has done it and done the thing and been very unabashed about just going for it um and it's not like they're mixed like all the stuff he did at Abbey Road or whatever, um, you know, but he's like not afraid to just go for it. And I think when you do that a little bit, the songs speak for themselves. That's great. I think that's beautiful. And it really shows uh, just what you can do by yourself and with others. And there's also different levels of collaboration too. So mm-hmm. that's good to know. You can have people who collaborate with you in a way uh, that is more focused, where it's like one-on-one, you know, there's so many things you can do. That's awesome. Thank you for telling us your five songs. This was an interesting list. I was not expecting My Chemical Romance or to even think about Metro Station again in my entire life. Uh, 
I googled them as we were talking, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, these tiny little pants!" I, I the whole emo hat on us is just so funny because it's. I remember being like in the two thousands and being like. You know, we have 80s day at school and 90s day at school. And what are people going to dress like when it's our turn? We don't even dress like anything. <laughs> I really and thought we weren't walking around in costumes. I thought we were timeless. In- I know. It was like, this is what I'm going to wear when I'm 40 and I take my kids to school. And uh, now, like, the coffee shop by my house does, like, emo day. And it's, like, a fallout boy-themed drink and, uh, like, that kind of shit. And then, like, you know, my girlfriend was a teacher last year. And uh, she still teaches private piano lessons. And yeah, uh, it's coming back. Emo is like, just like when we were kind of young, like we'd look back at the 90s a little bit or the 80s stuff. And I think the 80s kind of had a recent heyday too. But now it's like emo time. We love the emo stuff. Like that's what the preppy girls listen to is like My Chemical Romance and like Panic. They don't even know about the old Panic, dude. I don't even know. That is that is the that is the funny thing when people get mad and they see some like blonde soccer MLM soccer mom who's like, I used to love Paramore back in the day. It's like, no, you didn't. You weren't under the stairs. You weren't eating by yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I ate lunch in the band room. So I but there were a lot of us there, so it was cool. Something about not eating where you're supposed to eat is just a sign that you are an outcast. <laughs> yeah, you're either smoking weed or like being a super big geek. You're somewhere, nowhere in between. Well, this is a safe space for geeks as well. So I'm so glad you shared with me. I am so happy we had you on the show. So Ryan, tell everyone where they can find you, your music, and all the things you're putting out there on the socials. Um, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at a Ryan Torpia. There's uh, underscores in between that. But I'm pretty sure if you type Orion Torpia in there, it's going to come up. You can find me on Facebook. Don't add me. Uh, I played a show and I was like, you can find the band on Facebook. My name is Ryan Torpia and the Shaky Hands. And uh, some woman added me, my personal Facebook page. And I was like, don't don't add me. Go like the damn band page. That's why I made it. Um, <laughs> that's cute and stuff. If you add me, I might just be like, oh, hmm. That's cool. And just add you anyway. That's what musicians do. We just say yes to everything because we're just so desperate. Um, But yeah, you can find me on Facebook at Ryan Torpia and the Shaky Hands. No E in Shaky. I don't know. I'm dyslexic. I thought that's how you spell it. And um, yeah, I'm on Spotify. I'm just Ryan Torpia. That's T as in Tom, O-R, P as in Paul, E-A. And that's the way my daddy spells it on the phone. So... (laughs) Thank you for that. You guys enjoying the show? Make sure you follow us on uh, Instagram at Rhythm and Bay Podcast. TikTok. No, I don't have a TikTok. Lord, Lord have mercy. I'm so tired. You don't have a TikTok? Instagram. <laughs> no, not for the show yet. Uh, I do have a TikTok, uh, Jasmine Ellis Comedy, that just made it to 50K. Uh, oh, yeah. I follow her. Jasmine on TikTok. I'm like, yeah, dude, you got a TikTok. Oh, yeah. Almost. I've got a TikTok. I'm at Life O'Rye. So that's a thing, too. And Jasmine and Life I are on there. 
right r-y-e so yes you can find rhythm and bay podcast on twitter at rhythm and bay b-a-e remember it's like the term of endearment and then on facebook at rhythm and bay please like the page don't go looking for well you can add me i don't care anyways if you guys are enjoying yourselves make sure you are leaving us reviews that's how people find us the shows with the most reviews come up higher when they're looking for shows so give us a five-star review tell us what you love and feel free to email me or send me any messages if you have questions or want to hear any specific artists or see any specific comedians come on the show as always i'm your host jasmine ellis keep it smooth